When your doctor hands you a prescription for an antidepressant or something to solve your pain or sleep problem, you're assuming that that prescription, that medication has been tested and your doctor has experience with it. Oh, but if that were the case. Sadly, it's not necessarily. In over a quarter of the prescriptions that are handed out, there is no research on it and your doctor likely has little to no experience in using that drug for that use. You're at a lot of risk. Come listen, I'm talking to Joe Graydon of The People's Pharmacy about the practice of off-label and what you need to know the minute your doctor hands you that prescription. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. At the end, do me a favor, rate and review us, and stick around because we have a special offer for you. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Joe Graydon, co-founder of the People's Pharmacy website and co-host of the People's Pharmacy radio show. Joe, a pharmacologist, and his wife, Terry, have spent the last 40 years helping people make better decisions about their health with, among other things, in-depth understanding of the pros and cons of prescription and over-the-counter medications. They've written over 20 books, including Top Screw-Ups Doctors Make and How to Avoid Them, one of the classic titles of books of all time, I have to say. Um, and you can learn more about Joe and his wife, Terry's work at peoplespharmacy.com. Welcome, Joe. It's always great talking to you. Thank you, Sarah. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. You know, and it's so funny, I was, you know, as I was putting together your bio for this, and our mission and your mission are so similar in terms of wanting people to understand what's hidden underneath and help them give, have the tools and information to be able to make the best decisions in their lives. And healthcare has so many decisions they've got to be making. Absolutely. All right, today we're going to talk about something called off-label prescribing. Um, because I think that there, people don't realize, they think that when doctors hand them a prescription, that the doctor knows what they're doing and that there's a lot of research behind it and that it's scientific and that it must be legitimate because the doctor handed them a prescription. But the fact of the matter is that that's not the case, right? <laughs> and and there's, there's research and then there's what's something called off-label prescribing, which is what we're going to talk about today. So, Well, one of the things that I, I suspect a lot of patients don't realize is that one out of five prescriptions is off-label. Now, what does that mean exactly? What, what it means is that the Food and Drug Administration has not approved that drug for that particular use. They may have approved it for something else. That may have passed all of the tests, all of the requirements, all of the, the hoops, everything that the FDA requires, which can be very expensive and take a long time. But for an off-label use, it means that the FDA has not given a green light for doctors to prescribe that particular drug for that particular thing. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that doctors can prescribe any drug for any purpose and the FDA has no control over that. And so in a sense, it's the blind leading the blind, even if there may be some research to support that off-label use. It, it doesn't mean that it has really passed all of those rigorous tests the FDA requires. Which, yes, and you've just given the precy, the, the total summary on what is it, what it is that I want people to understand, that how vulnerable they are, how um, unresearched, how, how little information the doctors have and how f much freedom the doctors have. But before we go into the details of off-label and people, you know, kind of breaking that down, let's give, like, I'll call it three minutes on what's the process? Because there's aspects to even just the FDA approved the researched process that is not as reliable as people would like to think. So theoretically, what's, you know, just can you give just a brief of you know, the stages, you talked about the time and the money and how many layers of research a drug needs to go through and is supposed to go through before it's FDA approved, because there is this, this layer of process. It's it, incredibly complicated. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the medicinal chemists have to come up with a compound that they believe might work 
and be safe enough for humans. But then they have to do all of the what we call the toxicology research, the animal research, try to figure out what the right dose is. Then they'll do what we call phase two trials, which they're giving the drug to a relatively small number of people, maybe a couple of dozen, maybe 50 to 100 people, to make sure that it's actually safe enough to be given to humans. That's expensive, that's time consuming. And then we get to phase three clinical trials. These are the gold standard, the randomized controlled trials that everybody talks about where a, a pretty substantial number of people, it may be hundreds or even thousands in some cases, uh, will be randomized to either get the placebo, the sugar pill, or the actual drug in question. And at that stage, neither the patients who are volunteering to participate nor the doctors know who's getting what. And it's only after that phase three clinical trial, and the FDA requires two of those clinical trials before they grant approval. And this can take quite a few years, and some people say it costs billions, it's certainly hundreds of millions of dollars. And what people don't sometimes realize is how little the effect needs to be for the Food and Drug Administration to approve a drug. I mean, when you pop a piece of bread in your toaster, you expect it to toast the bread 10 out of 10 times. But a drug can get FDA approval if it only toasts the bread a little bit more than placebo. So it might only it might only toast your bread two or three times out of 10. Most people would find that unacceptable. But in the world of drugs, if it's just five or 10% better than placebo, it oftentimes will get a green light. And part of it is a money game, right? Because they need the, the drugs, when they get approval on their drugs, they only have it protected for a certain amount of time that they can market it under their name, their brand name. And after a period of time, it goes to generic. But if they twist it a little bit, change it a little bit, they can get a whole new drug approval and then again, protect their pocketbooks. Is that right? Exactly. Now, they won't get the full timeline that they got originally. But in some cases, if they can just buy an extra year or two, that can represent hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. So you might take a, a medication that you have to take, let's say, twice a day. Well, that's not very popular these days because everybody wants convenience. So the company then tweaks it, and now it's available once a day as an extended release product, and now they have an extended patent on that extended release product. So they, they get extra years, extra money. So, but meanwhile, though, I mean, it sounds really good because it's all these billions of dollars and thousands of people in the research studies, but there's even limitations that people need to understand about that. Like, they're not testing it on everybody, right? So that it's on limited demographics, right? Different a ages, genders, weights, right? Just because it, it got tested on a whole bunch of people doesn't mean that you fit the profile of who it was tested on, yes? I mean, you've actually identified what I think is one of the really critical issues in all of this uh, clinical trial business. Let's remember, it is a huge business. Um, drug companies can design their protocols very carefully, and they may exclude older people, as a for example. They may exclude women, as a for example. They may exclude people who have certain other health conditions so here you are you know testing a blood pressure medication and you're going to exclude everybody who has diabetes everybody who has heart disease uh, you know you have now eliminated a lot of people that might in some way impact the results of your clinical trial and but guess what once that drug is approved and is out in the marketplace millions of people who have diabetes heart disease, um, migraine headaches, maybe taking that medicine, but maybe that drug was never tested in that population. And what's the risk? Exactly. The risk right. is there because now when you have comorbidities, that is to say other conditions, it may make the drug much more toxic than they realized during the original clinical trial. It may not process as effectively. There may be other side effects, whatever it is that you know, all this scientific research, the doctors are still batting a little bit blind. 
Um, and we Bingo. Did, yeah, and we you, did a you study. You got it. <laughs> and the other thing that people don't realize is that it can take five or ten or in some cases 20 years for certain side effects to show up, especially in these kinds of populations that were not included in the original clinical trial. Well, and then the other thing, you and I did a, did a story years ago about dosing sizes. So what they give dosing, I'll call it, it's for the average, you know, whatever, 150 pound or 180 pound man. And I'm 120 pounds or Shaquille O'Neal is, you know, however, 300 and whatever pounds that he is. And that they're not adjusting doses either for different sizes, as you said, different genders. So that all of this is, is kind of a not as scientific as we think world. Exactly. I mean, people think that when the doctor, you know, writes a prescription or these days types the prescription into a computer or into a smartphone or an iPad or something of that nature, that it's really scientific. You're getting the exact appropriate dose for you. But in addition to that whole weight thing that you've just mentioned, you know, a 120-pound woman versus a 300-pound man, there are also genetic differences. So some people are super sensitive to medications because of their genes, their enzymes. Other people may be very slow metabolizers. And, and so the drug can have a profound impact on people depending on their genes and their metabolic structure. So there are so many factors that affect how that drug is going to work in your body. The dose is maybe not tailored exactly to your situation. Yeah. Okay. So now, meanwhile, we've just thrown the gold standard under the bus, right? So we had, here's the drugs and they're FDA approved. And now what we really want to talk about is, so within that context of that uncertainty, there's this whole other world of what you started describing called off-label, where the doctors can prescribe, what are they? They're free to prescribe, as you said, any drug for any reason, even if it wasn't what it was approved for. Is that, did I just state that properly? You absolutely stated that correctly. The FDA has no jurisdiction, no power over how doctors practice medicine. As a result, a doctor can do anything he or she pleases. Now, if it's really crazy, I mean, if it's way out there on thin ice and somebody gets harmed or dies, there's always, of course, the court system. But that's a terrible way to solve you know, problems of off-label use. So what people need to know is, you know, doctor, are you prescribing this medicine for, for a condition that has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration? Most doctors never tell their patients that they're prescribing off-label. Right, exactly. And we'll get to that part in a minute. Let's just talk for a minute more about, you said it's one in four prescriptions are, are um, prescribed off-label. But for kids in particular, I saw it's almost 50% that drugs are supplied or prescribed off-label because they're never tested on kids. And for kids well, we under six, yeah, it's even I mean, more. Children are terrifically vulnerable, and nobody's really keeping records because um, you know, a lot of this is speculation and, and guesswork because there's just no good database. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Kids are the most vulnerable, and they're the ones who are getting the most off-label prescriptions. I read a stat last night. 62% of outpatient pediatric visits resulted in off-label prescriptions, and kids under six, it was even worse. Again, because this, yeah. the drugs just aren't researched Isn't, for them. I mean, didn't you find that shocking? Yes. Thank God my kids didn't need drugs when they were little. Um, but now I forget the frightening stat of how many kids are on drugs. All right, but meanwhile, so I don't want to throw doctors under a bus because nobody wakes up and says, I think I'll harm my patient today. Their intention is good. They're wanting to help their patients. So somewhere, they didn't wake up and go, aha, I think that I'm going to prescribe, you know, Neurontin for hagnails. That somewhere they're getting an idea that this stuff will work, right? So where's that? Where are they coming up with those ideas? Well, that, that is a great question. And, and I wish we had a, a perfect answer. But it's sort of through the grapevine. Now, sometimes that grapevine is a very highly orchestrated process. And it takes me back to the drug called Neurontin. So the, the generic name for Neurontin is Gabapentin. And Neurontin was a very successful epilepsy drug uh, decades ago. 
And here was a medication that um, was very popular with neurologists. And then the company that was making it started promoting it off-label. So at medical meetings, in doctor visits between the sales representative and the physician, and the, the sales rep would sort of say, well, you know, you can prescribe Neurontin for pain and for uh, maybe fibromyalgia, maybe for migraine headaches, maybe for hot flashes. I mean, people were taking it and prescribing it for all kinds of reasons that the Food and Drug Administration had never approved it for. And, and in fact, the company got fined hundreds of millions of dollars for this off-label behavior. And let me, can I interrupt you for one second, Joe, because I don't think people realize necessarily, you know, you're saying the salespeople are going in and, and telling the doctors they can use it for these other purposes. But I'm not sure people realize that one of the primary ways that doctors get any information at all about how to use a drug or what a drug is used for is from this sales staff. They're not getting it from medical um, advisory clinics. They're not getting it necessarily from medical journals. It's the sales team from these pharma companies that are giving them that information, even for the FDA-approved ones. Well, Sarah, that, that is correct. Historically, that, that has been the case. Yeah. So a lot of very busy physicians would rely on the sales rep, the person representing that pharmaceutical company who would come in, leave a lot of free samples, and say, you know, this drug is great for X, Y, and Z. And oh, by the way, you might want to consider prescribing it for A, B, and C, even though A, B, and C might never have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Now, because that's illegal, uh, the Food and Drug Administration has gone after a number of companies, and the result has been, as I said, these huge fines. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars. So now, drug companies are a lot more careful than they were you know, two or three decades ago. But here's what happens. A doctor goes to a medical meeting and somebody gives a talk and says, oh, this drug is great for this other purpose. And pretty soon there's kind of a buzz and doctors tell each other and then they may see an article in a medical journal. And pretty soon these drugs become the go-to. Let me, let me give you an example, okay? Sure. Beta blockers, and we're talking about drugs that have been around for decades and decades. So this would be a drug like propranolol, metoprolol, atenolol. These drugs are prescribed for heart patients, for lowering blood pressure, for certain kinds of heart conditions. And somehow there is this sort of rumor that gets spread that beta blockers are great for, are you ready for this, stage fright. Stage so fright? If, stage fright. Got so it. if you're the kind of person who doesn't like to stand up in front of a group and give a talk like at the PTA or at the church meeting or maybe it's um, in front of your colleagues at work, the doctor might say, oh, well, instead of giving you a anti-anxiety agent, a benzodiazepine like maybe Valium, I'll give you propranolol. Or may, maybe you're an actor and you have to get up in front of a, you know, a large crowd of people and you go, oh, I always get stage fright. Or maybe you're a musician and, you, you know, you have the big concert coming up and you think, okay, well, my doctor has just given me metoprolol. Well, these drugs can be very effective for heart problems and they may even work for stage fright, but there are some people for whom they could be contraindicated, like if you had asthma, so that would be a no-no. And the dose for stage fright is gonna be quite different from the dose that you might take for a heart problem. So the bottom line is, if the FDA has never approved a beta blocker for stage fright, you could end up in all kinds of trouble because the doctor might not know how to prescribe it for that indication. And I think, was it you that had said to me or somewhere that I read that the risk of side effects, having uh, um, outside and dangerous side effects is about almost 50% higher on off-label drugs for exactly this reason. They don't know what it's interacting with. That doesn't surprise me at all because there's so much missing information. Let, let me give you another example, okay? So there's a drug that you probably have never heard of since it doesn't affect your life. It's called Tamsulacin. The brand name is Flomax, 
Mm-hmm. It's prescribed to men who have an enlarged prostate. So they don't have to get up three or four times during the night to go to the bathroom. Well, there was this rumor that got started, and maybe even a couple of studies showed up in the medical liter- literature that suggested that if you end up with kidney stones and you end up in the emergency department, that tamsulosin might help pass those nasty stones that are causing you so much pain. And if you're an emergency doc, you want to you want to help your patients. You don't want to give them morphine or, or you know another opioid. You know here's a drug that might help pass those stones a little faster. And you're going, hey, great, I'll I'll prescribe tamsulosin. Well, if you don't know the dose and if you don't know how effective it is, you're kind of you know shooting blind. Well, guess what? An article in JAMA Internal Medicine in August of 2018. A randomized clinical trial basically concluded tamsulosin did not work. And were so there risks associated line, with it besides? You know, people would be you know, taking on side effects right. without any benefit. So if they've got all these hunches and there's a bunch of people that think that, you know, beta blockers will work for anxiety or whatever, and you know, in that one, it's kind of interesting because wouldn't it be theoretically better to give a beta blocker than in a highly addictive um, drug like Valium or, or Xanax or something? Um, but then why don't they do research on it? Why don't they get together and at least start with some level of research so somebody's got some information on it? Well, what a good idea. But of Thank course, you. the drug company has lost its patent. It no longer has a financial incentive to do any further research on the brand names, Indural, for example, or Low Presser, uh, the brand names for those beta blockers many, many, many years ago. So the, the brand name company is like, we don't care. We can't make any money. It's available very inexpensively as a generic drug. We're not going to do it. So who's left? Well, it turns out that the only one left is the government, and the government says, eh, we're not going to spend money on that. No, that's not our, that's not our business. We, we don't do that kind of research. And so basically doctors are left on their own to decide whether they should or shouldn't. Now, in some cases, off-label prescribing can be wonderful, brilliant, life-saving. But unless we have good research, we may not know that. Well, and even like Viagra was originally a blood pressure pr- drug that I guess wasn't all that effective, but it sure ended up effective for ED. It did, and the company had learned about that early enough in the clinical trial process that they could switch over, and they could start um, they they could start doing research for erectile dysfunction. So the bottom line was, yeah, they made a mint, a lot of money on erectile dysfunction, even though they made nothing for high blood pressure or heart issues, which the drug was originally tested for. Well, and now I've read that they're uh, prescribing it for women for sexual um, arousal dysfunction. Well, now there are drugs for that, although quite I heard they're using Viagra. they haven't quite yet, um, I think, come up with the perfect solution for women's sexual dysfunction issues. It's been mostly a man's game up until now. So same thing, but I've read that they are using it for it so that they haven't, same thing, they haven't necessarily tested it on women, let alone women of um, childbearing years. Exactly right. So women, (laughs) you don't know what's going on and what the risk is of taking that. Um, Yeah, exactly. Let, Let me give you another couple of quick examples, if I can, of how people can get into all kinds of trouble with off label drugs. There are two old antidepressants. One is called amitriptyline. Another is called trazodone. And they prescribe amitriptyline for both pain and insomnia. Trazodone mostly for insomnia, although these were originally only approved for depression. And the trouble is these drugs have a lot of side effects. Uh, in, In particular, amitriptyline has what we call anticholinergic side effects, which means it affects a neurotransmitter in the brain and there is concern that anticholinergic drugs may increase the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Now if an older person is put on 
amitriptyline, not just for a few weeks or months, but years to treat insomnia, I worry, first of all, off-label, second of all, there may be some pretty serious consequences down the road. Well, and what's the brand name? Does amitriptyline have any brand name that it's under, just so people are aware if they've seen that? Well, in the case of amitriptyline, the brand name was Elevil. And, you know, it was one of those perfect names decades ago because it was like elevate your mood, right? Right. Uh, But now, of course, it's only prescribed generically. Well, and antidepressants, because I I wanted to talk about what some of the biggest categories um, of off-label usage are so that people are aware of it. And antidepressants in general seem to be kind of one of the easy go-to things. If you have insomnia, they'll give you antidepressants. If you have anxiety, they'll give it to you. I read if you have migraines, they'll give them to you. Across the board, they're handing out these antidepressants to solve an array of pain, right? For pain issues, they'll give it to you. That would be one example, absolutely. But here's one I bet you've never heard of. You, You certainly know about Prozac. Yes. Well, it turns out that Prozac is also prescribed off-label, I want to emphasize, for premature ejaculation. And yeah, but because so it gives you sexual of, dysfunction issues. It's a side effect is, is you have ejaculation problems. Exactly right. right. So it's like, oh, well, yeah, Prozac prevents sexual, uh, shall we say, satisfaction for a lot of people I know we'll try it for premature ejaculation. Well, yeah, it might work for that, but at the same time, it might have some other consequences that a lot of people might not appreciate. Well, not only that, if somebody gets given Prozac for the premature ejaculation, then they have performance issues. Do they come off that drug to solve it, or do they then get given Viagra to, <laughs> to be able to counter their their performance issues. So now they're well, on two drugs, you, the cascade of drug just, side effects. Now you've just identified what we call the vicious cycle syndrome, where you get put on drug A for one thing, and then that particular drug has a side effect, and then you get put on drug B to combat the side effect of drug A, but drug B has a side effect. Now you're put on drug C to deal with the side effect of drug B, and Pretty soon you're taking a handful of pills, all because that very first medication caused problems. Which may or may not have been prescribed on-label. It could have been an off-label prescription. Precisely. Perfect. All right. Let's. Um, one of the big areas that I saw that has a lot of um, off-label prescribing was restless leg syndrome. I saw um, antidepressants for that. I saw the same tramadol for that. Um, is that is restless leg one of the hot areas for off-label because people don't know what to do with it? Yeah, I mean, restless legs, it, it doesn't sound like a big deal. Like, why should people get all excited? But if you've ever had restless leg syndrome, people will tell you it's a creepy, crawly feeling. It's, a, it's a, incredibly distressing. It often happens when people get into bed at night and then they can't get to sleep. So their legs are jumping, they have to get up and they have to walk the room, pace the room, and that means they're not getting a decent night's sleep, which may make the restless legs even worse the next night. So we have a couple of drugs that have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. These are drugs that are also used for Parkinson's disease, Mirapex is one of them. And the, the problem with these drugs is that they also have a bunch of side effects. So that's the approved use indicated, but they can make people fall asleep during the daytime. So you could be driving down the road and you could fall asleep or you could be trying to do something that requires attention and you could fall asleep. So they can cause a lot of problems. In addition to that, they can sometimes cause uh, compulsions. So people have a hard time imagining that someone would end up doing something that they didn't want to do. But there are lots of stories now in the medical literature of compulsive gambling, compulsive sex, uh, compulsive eating. I mean, the list is quite large where people literally have spent tens of thousands of dollars on junk that they never really wanted in the first place. And this so is from the doctors. This is the on label. The, the, the FDA approved drug for, for restless leg does this to people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So that's an FDA approved medication with some serious side effects. 
So that's why doctors have tried other things off-label, as you've described them, and there's at this point, as far as I know, no perfect solution to this problem. Now, you're going to laugh because one of the things that we do with the People's Pharmacy is we tell people about alternative approaches, might help, won't hurt, doesn't cost very much, and people tell us that soap in bed with them, near their legs, sometimes soap chips in their socks can actually alleviate restless legs. One woman was flying from the U.S. to Europe on a regular basis, and she said, if you've got restless legs, sitting on an airplane for eight hours can be just torture. She put some soap chips in her socks, and she said that solved the problem without any medicine. So there's one option. That's crazy. Why did that work? I'm just curious. It's totally off topic, but gosh, why did that work? That's fascinating. Yeah, we, we don't have a clear mechanism, but some researchers have told us that they think it may have something to do with the fragrance that's often used in the soap. One of those fragrances is called limonene, not surprisingly yes. derived from lemons and limes. Yes. And um, there, there's something about that fragrance and maybe the contact with the skin that may affect nerve endings and the nerve endings may affect those muscles that cause that restless leg feeling. Have you gotten anyone to try just essential oils then? You know, I think essential oils might very well work, but uh, as far as we can tell, there's been no incentive to do that randomized, double-blind controlled trial that we were talking about for well, drug approval. That's they're, the, they're too expensive. Right, that's the problem for all of the natural treatments, that it, there just exactly. isn't the money there for it. Yep. All right, but we digress. Um, all right, so restless leg syndrome. Let's go back to Neurotin because that's what isn't that the number one off-label prescription, the number one drug uh, prescribed for off-label usage. Are, are you talking about gabapentin? Yes, gabapentin. Neurotin. Yes. Yeah, I mean it's it's right up there at the top. I mean it's been approved for two things and two things only: epilepsy and the nerve pain of shingles. Post herpetic neuralgia is the doctor speak way of describing that it, and it, it's painful if you've ever talked to anybody who's had this this nerve pain that lingers after an attack of shingles they will tell you it can be unbearable but in addition to those approved indications a lot of doctors are now prescribing gabapentin for nerve pain in general neuropathy for example fibromyalgia migraines hot flashes and I'm not sure they always warn people, A, that the drug was never approved by the Food and Drug Administration for those indications, and are they informed of the side effects, such as dizziness, fatigue, confusion, depression, dry mouth, indigestion, and visual problems, to name just a few. So yes, gabapentin is highly prescribed off-label, and I'm not sure people realize it. So... There are so there, I'm trying to kind of get bells that people need to have go off in their head. If if their doctor is prescribing gabapentin to them, if they're prescribing trazodone or tramadol or antidepressants in general, that those are some of the categories of drugs that are most often used for off-label. And then for certain, are there ailments? Same thing that should be you know red flags should hit in their head to be extra on alert in concern of of if they're getting given an off-label drug. So, you know, as you said, pain, sleep. Um, I saw antidepressants for hot flashes, like somehow hot flashes and fibromyalgia and all the women's stuff that doctors aren't sure if it's real or not. They seem to throw these things at. Is that true? Absolutely. And, and here's something that really concerns me. If a doctor prescribes an antidepressant for someone with severe depression, Hopefully, they'll say, never stop taking this drug suddenly without consulting me because we're going to have to come up with a gradual withdrawal plan. Let's take a drug like duloxetine. The brand name is Cymbalta. You can't stop this drug you know, in a day or two or a week or two. It, it may take several months of very gradual tapering to come off that medication without experiencing really unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. Those symptoms can feel like, as some people describe it, a head in the blender feeling or brain zaps, like electrical sensations in their brain. But, you know, sweating, I could get down a list of right. a dozen side effects. But here's the thing. 
if a doctor prescribes an antidepressant like, say, sertraline um, for hot flashes, he or she might not mention, oh, by the way, if you stop taking this drug suddenly after you think your hot flashes are gone, you could also experience some very unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. So please consult me before you stop taking it. We may have to do this very gradually and do it over a long period of time. Well, not only that, let me ask you this. So there's the lack of testing on a drug that's being prescribed for whatever that unique syndrome is, right? So it hasn't been tested on some certain issue. They do, they do not know how it's going to interact with that person in particular, depending on their size, their age, their weight, their metabolism, the other drugs that they're on. But meanwhile, on the flip side, the doctor's not experienced with it. So a doctor may be prescribing one of these antidepressants, but it's not part, maybe a doctor of internal medicine who isn't normally prescribing antidepressants. So they may not have the knowledge or experience in the tapering and with the side effects. Is that right? Absolutely the right problem. And, and you've asked the right question because um, it often has taken the Food and Drug Administration decades to even learn about these withdrawal problems. I mean, we've been talking about gabapentin, Neurontin, as this off-label prescribing situation where people are taking it for things like fibromyalgia. Well, it may be that you can't stop taking gabapentin suddenly without experiencing some uh, unpleasant symptoms. Um, a primary care physician may not be aware of that, whereas a neurologist who might be prescribing it for epilepsy would be much more aware of that potential problem and be able to do it much more cautiously. Yeah, it's really scary out there. So what's the average, I, heard, I don't remember what the exact number is, but I'm sure you'll know it. How many drugs does the average person take? And I know that it goes up with age, right? It does. Um, the Lown Institute did a study not too long ago, and the number of people, uh, off the top of my head, I can't give you exact numbers, but the number of people who are taking five drugs or more is substantial. But what really scares me is the number, of especially older people, who are taking 10 drugs or more. Right. And that often doesn't take into account over-the-counter medications, dietary supplements, um, you know, there are people who are taking handfuls of pills every day. And, and they, when it comes to over-the-counter, they, they don't even think of them as like real medicine. And so here we have a situation just recently where ranitidine, the brand name was Zantac, a, a drug for heartburn, was found to have a problem with a nitrosamine situation. And so millions of people may have been exposed to this for decades and I don't think, you know, the Food and Drug Administration had even a clue. But a lot of people, not just older people, are taking what we call the nighttime pain meds. And these are drugs with PM in their name. Uh, PM, obviously, for nighttime. So you've got Aleve PM and Advil PM and Tylenol PM, and the PMs are just taking over the world. And they contain an antihistamine called diphenhydramine. Diphenhydramine causes sedation, which is why they use it to go to sleep at night, but it could interact with other drugs. And we also worry about the fact that diphenhydramine has some pretty powerful anticholinergic activity. So that's very scary. And we, and we uh, stay, say again what the anticholinergic activity means? Anticholinergic drugs affect a neurotransmitter or, or they affect the way in which a neurotransmitter, a brain chemical called acetylcholine, works in the brain. And if you block acetylcholine, that may have an impact in years or even decades on the risk of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. So we're very concerned about keeping people's what we call anticholinergic drug load to a minimum. And so people who are taking nighttime pain medicines with diphenhydramine and maybe a couple of other medicines that also have anticholinergic activity, like motion sickness medicine, uh, that could add up to a real problem in, in, the, in the future. 
And just the scope of this problem is so enormous. So let's talk about what patients, what people need to do, given how many prescriptions they're being handed and how confusing it is. So what, what do patients do? Well, I think the very first thing, and, and it may be a little hard because, you know, there's a, a, a real power imbalance between the patient and the physician, the patient and the pharmacist. But I would always ask, doctor, is this an FDA-approved use for this medication? Because the doctor may not always volunteer that kind of information. And again, they're if not the required to. Pardon me? And again, they're not required to. Not required. There is nothing that says the doctor has to inform you if he or she is prescribing a medication off-label. That is to say, for a use that the Food and Drug Administration has not approved. If the doctor says, well, as a matter of fact, this gabapentin that I'm prescribing to you for fibromyalgia pain has not been approved. For the food admitted for the uh, by the Food and Drug Administration for this indication, then the next thing to do is say, well, can you show me the evidence that it's effective? I mean, are there some studies that you could provide for me? Let, let me give you an example. A lot of doctors, and there are times when I think off-label prescribing makes a lot of sense. There's a very old anesthetic called ketamine. The brand name was Ketalar. It was an intravenous anesthetic. And it's been discovered in the last decade or so that it can work for very severe depression, especially suicidal thoughts. So if a patient was diagnosed as suicidal, the doctor might say, well, I'd like to administer ketamine intravenously in my office right here, right now, because the antidepressant effect can go to work within a few hours instead of weeks or longer with a traditional antidepressant. Oh, and by the way, it's off-label. And the patient should be able to say, okay, doc, I'm in a really bad place. Tell me about the side effects, because there are some, some interesting and perhaps devastating side effects that can kind of cause a hallucinatory-like effect. And if the patient doesn't know that, that would be very scary. So in this particular instance, if somebody were suicidal, ketamine might in fact be the the appropriate best medicine, even though the Food and Drug Administration has not yet approved it for that. But A, patients should ask, doctors should tell them that it is or is not off-label, how good the evidence is for it working for your particular situation, and then number four, find out about the side effects. And oh, by the way, what the right dose is for your indication. Because again, the FDA has not provided guidance to the, to the drug company or to the doctor. So I'm not generally a fan of Dr. Google. But in this case, because the doctors may not even be that educated about the side effects, right? They may or may not know some of these side effects. If, they, if they've, you know, kind of chatted and someone said, hey, I used ketamine for this, but they may not have had the rich conversation. In these cases, should people, before they start on any drug, go do their own Googling a little bit and see, it, see what other users have to say about it? And again, I'm not generally a fan of Dr. Dr. Google. Well, I have, like you, mixed feelings about Dr. Google. I mean, I think that it's always worthwhile for people to do their own research. And, and Dr. Google is handy, as close as your cell phone, your tablet, or your computer. On the other hand, recognize that there is a lot of bogus information out there, misinformation. So there are a couple of places where I always like to go. One is called Daily Med. And Daily Med will tell you a lot about any particular drug and whether what the actual FDA-approved indications are. So go to Daily Med, look up your drug, and find out if it's been approved for that indication and then what the side effects are, because that's the official prescribing information that the FDA has blessed. Another place to go is something called PUB, P-U-B, Med. And PubMed is the National Library of Medicine. 
and basically you can put in your drug, you can put in the indication. For example, I was telling you about tam, tam some people, by the way, pronounce it tamsulosin. Uh, this is the drug that I was describing for men with an enlarged prostate, and emergency docs were using it to help people pass kidney stones. Well, all you have to do is put into your search tamsulosin and kidney stones. And this article from JAMA Internal Medicine from August 2018 will come up and it'll tell you what their conclusions and relevant data are. So sometimes use Dr. Google, but go to the source, and that would be the official prescribing information or the most recent research in the National Medical Library. And does peoplespharmacy.com ever have information of this type on here or warnings? Uh, People's Pharmacy is kind of the drug watchdog over big pharma, over generic drugs, over the Food and Drug Administration, over things like off-label uses. If there's a new breakthrough, we're going to tell you about it and tell you what the benefits and risks are. So that is a large measure of what we try to do. So some of these I should come to People's Pharmacy as well and search on a specific drug and see if anything's been reported or there's been an issue with it. Absolutely. You can we toot your own to stay horn. up to date on the latest research. Yes. Um, let's go back to the questions for the doctors. In general, I mean, I always ask a doctor, why are you giving me this and why this one, right, versus other options, right? That is an essential question. I mean, you know, why are you giving me this and are there any other alternatives? Are there any non-drug alternatives? So a lot of people think there's a pill for every ill because all they have to do is turn on the evening news and see, you know, half a dozen prescription drug commercials trying to tell you that there is an absolutely a pill for every ill. Yeah. But a lot of times there are non-drug options and always ask your doctor if that's the case. Like soap if chips. If the doctor says, nope, this is it, this is the best, this is the only, find out what the benefits and risks are. Tell me about the most common side effects, doctor, and what are the most dangerous side effects? What symptoms should I be, uh, should I be alert for in case I start to go downhill? Yeah, and I want to add on also, you asked about you know, asking the details about what evidence the doctor has for using this drug. But I'd also um, suggest another piece of it, which is the doctor's own experience with it. So I remember when I was going to have um, an amnio, and I was a little bit young. I was kind of on the edge of whether or not it was required for me. And my doctor tried to discourage me from it, and he talked about the risks and, you know, risk of um, ending, the, terminating the pregnancy and stuff. And, but he was giving me the generic stats. So I asked him about his stats and his experience in it, and they were entirely different. So to me, what's your evidence of it is slightly different from what's your direct experience. Again, because I want to know that my doctor has watched patients have those effects or side effects or risks experience. Absolutely. I mean, and another great question is, you know, how many patients has have you prescribed this drug to? If the doctor says, well, I prescribed it to 500, maybe 5,000, you know, that doctor has a lot of experience with that medication. If it's 50, that's a whole different ballgame. Right. And are any of them like me? Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's a really important question. Are, you know, have you had experience with people like me? Yeah. All right. One other question about all of this. So we're talking about all this off-label usage. What about insurance? Does insurance cover this stuff? Oh, man, have you hit a nerve with that question. <laughs> Thank you. Insurance companies are always looking for a way out. <laughs> what I mean by that is how can we avoid paying for this expensive brand name medicine? Like maybe it's for cancer. And if you've been tracking this as we have, you know that some of the latest and greatest cancer drugs can cost a hundred to $150,000 for a year's treatment. Yes. So um, let's just imagine that your oncologist says, well, I have discovered that this particular cancer that you have just been diagnosed with will respond beautifully to this new immunotherapy. That's the good news. The bad news is that the drug company has not yet applied for or received approval by the FDA for this 
new cancer, this kind of cancer that you have, and therefore your insurance company is almost guaranteed to reject the prescription that I want to write for this treatment. So now the doctor has to try to appeal the decision. The insurance company may deny the appeal. And meanwhile, you know, you're, you're going downhill fast. Right. And so if a drug company has not yet received approval for a, an important new medication for a very important problem like cancer, the insurance company may very well turn thumbs down and you are pretty much out of luck unless you can afford to pay for it out of pocket. And how about on these, what I'll call more benign uses, right? So insomnia, restless leg, you know, every pain in, in you know, fibromyalgia, every pain, every everything where, you know, yeah, they're not um, cancer, but same drugs, thing, they're off label. Sure. Some of these drugs can also be pretty expensive. And so, you know, for a more quote unquote benign condition than cancer, uh, again, the insurance company may say, well, you have to first fail all of the standard treatments. And if you failed all of the standard treatments, then maybe we'll consider this off-label use, but they may also turn thumbs down on that as well. And so again, if it hasn't received the um, green light from the Food and Drug Administration, uh, you may be out of luck when it comes to getting someone to help pay for the cost. All right. A lot for people to consider on so many levels when it comes to prescribing drugs in general, but this whole concept of off-label prescribing. Joe Graydon, you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you to you and Terry for all the great work that you're doing at People's Pharmacy. And thanks for being so great with Bottom Line. Thank you, Sarah, for taking on such an important topic and, and really digging pretty deep to get all the details out so that people understand both the benefits and the risks of off-label prescribing. I'm talking to Joe Graydon of The People's Pharmacy about the very popular but often extremely risky practice of off-label medication prescribing. Patients would love to assume that when their doctor prescribes a medication that it's been well-researched and is well-understood to be able to help their problem. But there's a significant number of medications, and antidepressants, medications for neuropathy in particular, for which prescriptions are being written, but no FDA approval research has been done at all. Joe's been providing Bottom Line's readers with cautionary insights about the medications that have been prescribed for many years. His insights appear regularly in our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, which is filled with information from America's leading experts on not just help and hype of prescription medications, but on all aspects of your life, including travel, the best insurance coverage, living a healthy life, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.